Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome, everyone, to the uh, very first episode of Actively Speaking. And I'm very excited to be joined today by Bill Priest, who is the CEO of Epic, as well as the co-CIO and a co-founder of the firm. And for a podcast called Actively Speaking, we thought, what better topic for our first episode than to talk about active management and, and more specifically the, the debate that's going on for many years now about active versus passive. I thought I would start off by just for giving a background. Um, I'm not sure everybody uh, at this point remembers where indexing came from or where the idea behind passive management comes from. So uh, I'm just going to take a minute to go through that background and talk about some of the problems with the, uh, the arguments for it. The idea for passive management really springs from modern portfolio theory, uh, going back to the 1960s, really going back to Harry Markowitz's uh, famous paper in the 1950s about portfolio selection. And it was, it was that paper that set up the idea that the way you measured the risk of, a, of an asset or a portfolio was to use the volatility of the returns that that asset generates. And, and modern portfolio theory is, is built on that very heroic assumption that that one number captures the risk uh, of any stock or any portfolio. And the, the attraction of that way of thinking is that it's an objective number. Uh, it doesn't matter who's doing the measuring, the standard deviation of, of a series of numbers is what it is. And so if you define that, uh, use that as your definition of risk, we can all agree on what the riskiness of a, of a given stock is or a portfolio. And when you go through the logic of, of modern portfolio theory, which views the world through that, quote, mean variance lens, where variance, again, refers to the variance of the returns. Um, I'm not going to go through the derivation here, but it, it gets you to this point where you say, well, there's this one portfolio. We don't know what it is, but there's this one portfolio out there which you can combine with cash in various mixes, depending on your risk uh, tolerance. And that's the best, that's the optimal portfolio. It's the, there's this one portfolio. And then there's a logical deduction basically from that point. It's not a mathematical proof. It's really a logical deduction that, well, what's the one portfolio that we could all own? I mean, if it's an optimal portfolio and we all agree it's optimal, because again, we all agree on in this framework on what risk is. Uh, so if there's this one optimal portfolio, surely we would all want to own that same portfolio. Well, what's the only portfolio we can all own at the same time? It's got to be the market, because if, if any one of us overweights something or underweights something, then by definition, somebody else has to be on the other side of that, that weighting, that over or underweighting. So we wouldn't all hold the same portfolio. So in essence, we all hold a miniature version of the market, or if you view the other way around, the market is just the aggregate of this same portfolio that we all own. So that's really where the, the logic of indexing comes from, uh, this idea that there is an optimal portfolio. The problem with this is that the idea that standard deviation of returns captures what, how people perceive risk uh, is really just not accurate. And in particular, uh, in, in subsequent years, there's been a lot of work by behavioral economics, uh, behavioral finance theorists, uh, pointing out that uh, there's this phenomenon of loss aversion that we all uh, have, where to me, the gain of a, of a 10% return might be offset by the pain of a of a 5% loss but for you it might be that the the pleasure of a, or the 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 positive utility of a 10% gain is offset it would take a 9% loss to offset that 
Uh, and so, therefore, you and I are not going to uh, look at, at a stock or a portfolio and agree on how risky it is. We're going to have different perceptions of the riskiness of that. And if that's the case, then it's, it's really hard to conclude that, that there's one portfolio that we would all agree is optimal because we're going to have different uh, perceptions of, of the riskiness of that portfolio. So that's really kind of the flaw in the, the original logic behind, behind indexing and passive management. Um, but Bill, let me let me ask you. There's there's another issue uh, when it comes to passive management, which is there's this weird paradox that if more pe- the more people adopt it, you would think that the market would become actually less efficient uh, because there would be fewer people trying to figure out what things are worth. What are, do you have any thoughts on that? Thanks, Steve. Uh, actually, if you go back to the '60s, and I was there, so to speak, at the time. And a very well-known investor at that time, uh, Roger Murray, who was head of TIA CREF and was uh, teaching at Columbia at the time, um, led a discussion of indexation and basically referred to it as being un-American. And the crowd cheered. Uh, You rapidly go ahead 50 years and indexation takes a major, major role in the investment uh, world today. And I think next month we may very well see passive assets in total exceed the actively managed assets. If you think about it, uh, back in the 60s, everyone was an active manager at one point. And in effect, the market was quite efficient in the sense of price discovery with all of those participants. So in a way, index fund, the index fund itself got a free ride on the dis- uh, price discovery of all the participants. Now, as you fast forward to today, there's still this free rider effect, but it's much, much less than you would think. Uh, the fewer people doing active management means there's less work being done on price discovery, which is the heart of, of uh, efficiency of, of markets. So at some point, uh, you can, may continue to see fewer active managers, but there has to be some. There will always be a remnant of active management because there has to be price discovery. What proportion of asset managers that is or proportion of assets, I don't know, but without it, you run into a lot of issues surrounding price discovery and valuation. And you can see it to some extent today if you look at various factors. Within any given factor that people are looking at, you, so you can see the correlation of the names within that factor. The correlation among those names is actually rising, suggesting that people are buying a collection of securities or a subset, if you will. And there may not be a lot of price discovery there. That actually opens up a real opportunity for active management. Uh, and in that case, I think the, the better managers will indeed be able to exploit that and, um, and active management will continue to prosper. But you have to demonstrate value add. There are a number of ways to do that. Uh, the most popular one perhaps is using something called the information ratio. But again, it reverts back to some of these common, um, common substandards uh, that you mentioned earlier, Steve, like standard deviation and whatnot. There, this asymmetry is, is really important. Uh, most people that I know really don't value a dollar gain the same way they would value a dollar loss. Uh, if you're extremely rich, a um, million dollars might be a $5 bill to you. But for most people, when they start to lose a five-figure sum, it means a lot more to them than it does if they were to make it. So this asymmetry is yet to be played out, but it, it's clearly there and you can see it in the literature. Right. Well, I mean, it has to be asymmetric because, you know, you can you can have a 
suppose it were the case that, you know, a 50% gain was the exact opposite of a 50% loss. Okay, well, then what would be the opposite of a 120% gain? You know, there's no such thing as a 120% loss. So there's got to be an asymmetry there. But the really, the key thing is that it, it varies from person to person. And that, that's, that's really the key point is that we can't, um, the, you know, the, the sort of the dream of modern portfolio theory is that there's this objective measure of risk that's independent of what, it doesn't matter who it is. You can say, well, everybody's going to agree. This is, this number captures the risk of this asset. And the, the point about loss aversion is that it varies from person to person. And so we can't agree on, on uh, the level of risk. You, you mentioned, sorry, a second ago about um, some of the inefficiencies that would arise uh, if there's more passive management. And you mentioned ETF phenomenon. And, and there have been studies of this that, Stocks that are part of, you know, popular like sector ETFs or, or uh, ETFs that focus on a, some particular topic, um, they do become they are becoming more correlated with the other stocks within the ETF and actually less correlated with their own fundamentals. So, in other words, the the you know things like the earnings reports are are driving those stocks less than they used to, and they're being more driven by just if people decide they want exposure to that industry and they buy the ETF all the stocks in that ETF get pushed up at the same time. Um, there's also evidence that uh, we actually wrote about this in one of our white papers. Um, I think it's uh, from, I think from 2017 uh, about uh, the, it's called the uh, impact of passive investing on market efficiency. It's on our website. Um, that bid ask spreads have begun to widen in stocks that uh, the more, the more it gets, uh, the more of its shares are held by an ETF and the less by you know, individual people, whether it's institutions such as ourselves or, or individual shareholders. But the more that the, the greater the percentage of the stock that is held by ETFs, the generally the wider the bid ask spread gets. Um, there's evidence that there's an interesting study a few years ago looking at stocks included in the S&P 500, that they, they trade at higher valuation multiples than stocks outside of the index, even when you hold all other things equal as much as you can. And, and which raises the question of, you know, can active managers capture those those inefficiencies because you might say hey look these these you could for example you could go short the s&p 500 and long a, a basket of stocks that are not in the index but that look kind of like the index and you, you say ah, oh, i'm going to capture that valuation arbitrage but you know if there's a continuing wave of money uh, going into into the s&p 500 passively the etfs or index funds you could get swamped by that while you're, you're waiting for that that uh, valuation anomaly to correct, you, you could, uh, you could, you know, go out of business waiting for that to happen. Um, so that, that's an interesting topic is, you know, can, can active managers actually profit from this? Um, well, I think part of it, well, the two things come to mind. Uh, we have a colleague who repeatedly says you can't manage what you can't measure. And this is almost a fetish in some cases, particularly with quantitative uh, managers. But Einstein had a comeback for that. And Einstein said, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. And I think it's within those two phrases that active and passive uh, live uncomfortably together. Uh, if you have all active, I think there's really a case for, um, for indexation. But the further you get a, into indexation, the opportunity opens up for the fact that, hey, many things that can't be counted really count. And I think we tried to put this together in the book that, that we wrote with our colleague, uh, Mike Wellholter. We felt that to, to win at active management, 
It required first an attitude is expressed in culture, and I think culture matters, and I think the culture has to be that the client's got to win. And if the client doesn't win, uh, it's a problem. And even the very aspiration statement that we have, we see it every day on our computer when we light it up, there, there are three things that matter. Uh, we, we want to provide positive risk-adjusted performance to the client, we also want the client to understand and value how we do what we do, because if they don't understand how and why we do what we do, you're in a situation where you're hired by the numbers and fired by the numbers, and that probably is, is not, not optimal. And the third thing is we like to think that uh, we, can, we will be seen as thought leaders in the business. And frankly, thanks to the work you've done and, some, uh, and the rest of us, uh, Epic over time has written something like 100 white papers and many of them, I think, are, are really, really quite good. And uh, when, I, when I look at what you need to succeed, though, through all of that, it is the philosophy. What determines value? And I, as we've talked about many times, cash flow drives the value of any business. Earnings are an accounting assumption. Uh, as we point out in a number of papers, earnings are kind of astrology. Cash flow is more like astronomy. Uh, businesses run on cash and cash flow. And uh, any investing model or investing philosophy needs to be built around that. So uh, the things that really matter are understanding how that cash flow is generated. And the second question is, how does management allocate that cash flow? And there's only five things they can do with a dollar of, of uh, cash flow. And uh, for the record, we should probably define what we mean by cash flow. And we often use a phrase, a phrase called free cash flow. And what we mean by that is free cash flow is the cash available for distribution to shareholders after all planned capital expenditures and all cash taxes. At the end of the day, there's only five things that any management can do with that money. They can pay a cash dividend. They can buy back stock. They can pay down debt. They can make an acquisition. They can reinvest in their business. And there, the real question is, can they generate a premium over their cost of capital? Uh, and, and if they can, then reinvesting and acquiring uh, will probably make the most sense. Uh, otherwise, when they have that dollar of free cash flow, if they can't generate their cost of capital, they should give it back to the owners of the business. And we've essentially built all of our products around those concepts. Yeah, well, it, I was going to... I was going to turn next to the book, and, and the subtitle of the book was The, the Essential Roles of, of Culture, Philosophy, and, and Technology. Um, do you want to talk more about culture a little bit? Uh, uh, you know, what do you think are the important aspects of, of, a, of a successful asset management firm's culture? Well, I think all firms in any business have a culture. You may not realize it until you arrive there and experience it, uh, but every entity has a culture. It can be a for-profit entry, a non-for-profit entity, but there's a culture present. And I think the cultures that matter, uh, if, you're in the, if you're in the business of exchanging knowledge, uh, you have to look at the structure of that entity. And we've often contrasted the command and control model that you see in large organizations, banks, insurance companies, the military, uh, and there's no other way for these organizations to function except through this, this structure. On the other hand, if you're in the knowledge exchange business, like a consulting firm, arguably a law firm, or an investment firm, a partnership model is, is a much better structure. And the, uh, the idea is that there is a, a very small hierarchy 
and it's a horizontal one that you want to achieve and you want to collect people who because of their nature and or the incentive structures that they will collaborate collaboration is the heart i think of of, of a good culture that people will work together in pursuing the objective of making sure that the client wins so on the culture side i think it's very important that uh, that we have a situation where people feel that they're part of the organization and I often think that when you look, when we look at hiring people, people join a firm or stay at a firm or leave a firm for three reasons. Um, the first reason is, do I like my colleagues? Because if you don't like your colleagues, life can be pretty challenging. Um, the second issue, and it varies by age and experience, but do I have a platform from which to uh, grow my human capital? Uh, am I going to be around people who are going to make me better, so to speak? It doesn't mean better in the firm you're in necessarily. It just means that your, your personal growth is better. You're able to grow your human capital. Uh, the third reason is I call it the reward module. It has two components to it. Part of it is compensation. Uh, you want to think that you're being paid fairly. And the day you say yes to an offer, by definition, supply meets demand. At that point in time, it's fair. Uh, you may change your mind the next day, but that day it's fair. But the second more component of that module is what I call moving the needle. It's making a difference. And uh, that's one of the first questions that I like to delve into with a prospective employee because frankly, a firm of our size with 115 people or so, there are many large firms that could in, on paper outbid uh, us for any human being that, uh, that might be available. But that person needs to want to make a difference. If it's, if it's in his personality or her personality, as the case may be, to feel that I want to go somewhere where I matter and I make a difference. I call it moving the needle. If that's part of your DNA, then a firm like Epic is really a good place for you because we're small enough that we can't have a failure. We can't, we can't have 10% of the people not doing their jobs. If in the military, if 10% of the people aren't doing their jobs, it's probably not a big deal, at least in peacetime, uh, but uh, it's a different story in a smaller firm. Everybody's got to feel that they matter that they are moving the needle and collectively the firm is a product of, of those individuals. Okay. Uh, yeah, the middle, so the middle part of the book was about philosophy and you touched on that with uh, talking about Epic's philosophy on, on the importance of cash flow generation, how companies allocate cash flow and how they allocate that cash flow to its uh, five possible uses. I'll just add that uh, one of the things we also talked about in there was that if you're going to succeed as an active manager, you need to uh, identify something, you know, understand that the market does process a lot of information pretty well. Markets are not, you know, dumb. They, they are pretty efficient, uh, but they're not perfectly efficient, but they, you know, they're reasonably good at processing a lot of information. So you have to identify some reason to believe why the market is wrong about certain companies. What is it that people are missing? Is there some systematic bias in the way people process the information? Are there just other, other uh, behavioral biases that come into play about what causes people to like certain kinds of companies uh, that are exhibiting certain characteristics or dislike other kinds of companies? Uh, and as we say in the book, cast a wide net, um, meaning, you know, you just got to sort of figure on if you own enough of these names, uh, you know, that's you're going to get the signal, so to speak, and, and, and eliminate the noise. And obviously, portfolio construction is an important part of that, too, in filtering out the noise. Um, and then the last part, which, which brings us to the third part of the book about technology uh, that's related to the portfolio construction part, but it has a much broader meaning, really. Uh, how do you think to, to succeed at active management, what do you think the role of technology should be? 
I don't think you can succeed in this business without incorporating technology into the process of security selection, portfolio construction, and even trading. All, if you think about what it takes to manage money, there is this issue of security selection, portfolio construction, where you're essentially controlling risk and exposures, if you will, to different kinds of risk. And then you have to be able to trade effectively. Well, well how do you know if you're, if you're doing a good job? And I think as time has gone by, uh, you can weave technology into that. And many years ago, we sent a memo out internally about racing with a machine. There are some things that computers do better than we do. They can sort faster. They can do a lot of things better and quicker. So what you want to do is keep the judgment part of the equation with the human being, but you want to get, if you can, put as much of the other on, onto, uh, onto the machine. So one of the things that I, just a personal anecdote, but I can remember when I first came into this business, I was a, a railroad analyst and I was given uh, a job of kind of looking at railroad securities, railroad equities to see if they were attractive. And I was in the process of building a model for the industry. And at the time, this is pre-computers, uh, we had electromechanical calculators on which you would, you would conduct studies. And uh, it took me many weeks, but I came up with a demand model for railroads. Uh, the key demand uh, measure for a railroad is one ton of goods carried one mile. So think of it as ton miles. And so I built a stepwise regression program to explain uh, ton miles. And it turned out there were only three or four variables and that was very powerful because as you went, as you began to look at what you were learning, you learned that demand for much of the goods that railroads carried were inelastic. If you think about it, they carried commodities, they carried heavy cars at the time, they carried big, heavy things. And there really weren't, at that time, uh, alternative modes of transportation. Occasionally you could do barges if you were going north and south, but if you're going east and west, it really was grain, durables, coal, those things. Well, that model was very powerful because it highlighted the fact that demand was inelastic and railroads, believe it or not, had a lot of pricing power. They didn't realize it at the time, but they did. Now that took me almost three months to write that paper, visiting libraries, reading documents in the libraries. It took forever. That same study today can be done in an afternoon. Uh, all that data is available online. And it's important that analysts be able to know how to use the data that's available to them. Um, so I think the key, though, is you want to keep the judgment with the human, but you want the collection of data to be done more and more effectively uh, by, by embracing uh, the machine. The, one of my favorite questions in talking to management, uh, in fact, I have two favorite questions. The first one, Steve, you alluded to earlier, is how do you, how do you guys allocate capital? If they were to say, well, we, um, uh, we're a growth company, we reinvest every dollar internally, either through acquisitions or internal capital projects. That's a terrible answer. A better answer would be, we think our cost of capital is six, seven, eight, 9%. To that, we add 500 basis points, 600 basis points, or some number to come up with a hurdle rate. And we will reinvest or acquire down to that hurdle rate. And if there's any money left over, we give it back to the owners through cash dividends, buybacks, or debt paydowns. That's a great answer. You don't know if they're any good at it. That's why you have analysts to kind of back test and take a look at, at how they're allocating capital. But recently, a little over a year or so ago, I had a client say, so what's your digital strategy? That was an interesting question. I really didn't have an answer, but the more I thought about it, it was the wrong question. 
The right question is what is your business strategy in the digital age? And that's what the technology section of our book is about. We live in a digital age. It's very different than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. You've alluded to it in terms of the active passive issue, but you can see it in risk management, you can see it in security selection, and you're going to see more and more of it in the portfolios that are available for individuals to buy. If you're not racing with the machine, and if you don't have a business strategy for the digital age, I think you're gonna die. So the bottom line is that uh, to be successful, an active manager needs to use technology for what it's good at, but also needs to use human judgment for what the humans are good at because the data can't, uh, you know, it doesn't know everything. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, the data is backward looking and, you know, you need human judgment to, to incorporate some of the forward looking. I think it insights. is a fusion of you can't manage what you can't measure. At the same time, Einstein was right. Not everything that counts can be counted and not everything can be counted counts. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks for joining us, Bill. Uh, this was the, uh, the first episode of Actively Speaking, but I think I can say without fear of contradiction that you've been the best guest so far. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcast or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. We'll talk to you again soon. Information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.